Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. And over the last couple of snapshots, Mark has highlighted that Jesus is traveling to Judea and ultimately to Jerusalem. And along the way, he's been warning his disciples of what's going to happen when he gets there. Uh, This section that we're going to look at in this recording includes Jesus' third prediction of his death and resurrection. It's actually the most detailed of the three. And the disciples, the twelve particularly, have been struggling to grasp what Jesus is getting at. And this section shows just how far they still need to go in actually grasping what's going to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem. And not only that, the significance of what's going to happen to him for themselves as being his disciple. Mark opens the scene by describing Jesus's focused goal, which is Jerusalem, and the varied reactions of people around him to this resolute focus on going to Jerusalem. Here's the way Mark chapter 10, verse 32 puts it. Now, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and we've Noted that just here in the setup, but also Mark over the last few scenes has highlighted this, that he's traveling to Judea. He's heading to Jerusalem. This is this is Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem that will culminate with the triumphal entry into the city and then ultimately lead to that final week of his life that leads up to his crucifixion. And so they're on the road. They're heading to Jerusalem. Jesus is walking ahead of them. Notice that in this to emphasize kind of the resolute nature, this goal-oriented focus on getting to Jerusalem, Mark tells us Jesus is actually ahead of them on the road. He's resolute, he's focused, he's moving ahead of them on the road, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And so it seems like we have a couple different groups involved here, even though the pronouns are a bit unclear. You obviously have Jesus, and he's walking ahead of them, You have, they were amazed. Who's that? Probably referring to like the 12 and Jesus' closest disciples. They uh, were amazed and those who followed were fearful, meaning probably others in their entourage, others in their caravan that's heading to Jerusalem for Passover. And so you have Jesus, the disciples, and others. And you have this varied response to Uh, Jesus. The one that's really surprising is the others who followed were fearful. Why are they afraid? Well, from what we can gather in all of the Gospels, as well as even from Josephus, there was an ominous sense of doom that hung over this trip. Um, Josephus even tells us for 40 days prior to this that there was reports going out from the Jerusalem leadership uh, trying to find a way to capture Jesus. And so you put that together with what we see in the Gospels, Jesus' warning of his death, his focused resoluteness about this whole trip. There's this ominous sense, kind of this dark cloud, this resolute sense of purpose that hangs over this trip. And people are sensing that in the crowd. That seems to be the idea, and that's why they're fearful. And along with that, it's possible that they're even wondering about Jesus and his claims to be Messiah and Rome and Passover and what lies ahead. 
when they get to Jerusalem, since it's obvious he wants to get there and he's focused on that and they've heard stories and reports, they have preconceived ideas about the Messiah. So there's all of this tension and sense of sort of foreboding that attends to this trip to Jerusalem. And in the midst of that, Jesus takes the 12 aside and he seeks to really once again, help him understand what's going to happen when he gets there. It says this, And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And so here Jesus predicts once again What's going to happen at Jerusalem? Notice you have, he describes himself as the Son of Man, which is a glorified title from Daniel chapter 7. But he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. Those are Jewish rulers. So he's going to be handed over to the Jewish leadership there in Jerusalem. They, the chief priests and scribes, will condemn him to death, and then they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. And the reason, actually, that's going to be the case is the Romans had, by and large, removed the penalty of capital punishment from the Jews. And so the Romans were going to be the ones that were going to be necessary if they were going to be able to put Jesus to death. So although the chief priests and the scribes will pronounce a death sentence, in order for that to be carried out, they're going to have to hand him over to the Gentiles, that is, to the Romans. And Jesus knows exactly what they're going to do to him. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, And they will mock him, the Son of Man, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise from the dead. And so Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. That probably is what creates this sense of foreboding on this trip, this sense of resolute purpose that goes along with that. He knows what he's walking into, and he is mentally prepared for it as best as he can be. Well, in this very context where Jesus has just told them what's going to happen to him and how he's going to be rejected, spit on, flogged, killed, and all of that, look what James and John do. Verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, two of the twelve, right? They've been with Jesus since the beginning. James and John come up to Jesus saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus replies to them, verse 36, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right, one on your left, in your glory. Like, they know he's on the way to Jerusalem. They know what's going to happen when he gets there. Jesus just predicted that to him. But they kind of skip over all of that. And they're picturing Jesus in his glorious messianic kingdom. And what they want are the chief seats. They want to be his right and left-hand man. They want to be like his closest advisors. You can have the throne, Jesus. Just give us the two seats right next to you. That's what they want. But Jesus, verse 38, said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? 
What is Jesus getting at? Well, this is figurative speech for experiencing something. Drinking something is to ingest it, to take it in. Being baptized is to be completely submerged in something. And so this is picture language for describing Jesus' suffering and death. And what he's essentially saying to James and John are, look, if you actually want to be associated with my kingdom, if you want to be great in my kingdom, it's going to be attended with uh, self-sacrifice and suffering. And so he says, do you think you're up for that? How do they respond? Verse 39, they said to him, we are able. We are able. They're completely confident. We can drink that cup. We can be baptized with that baptism. Um, and they are full of confidence and bravado about that. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. In other words, you will experience suffering, hardship, uh, pain, persecution for my sake. But, verse 40, to sit on my right hand or my left is not mine to give, but it's for those to whom it's been prepared. Um, and so you will experience suffering, but I'm not in a position to actually appoint to you the chief seats in my kingdom. And the reality is James and John did drink that cup. They did uh, experience that baptism. James, in fact, was the very first apostle killed for Jesus' sake. You can read about it at the very beginning of Acts chapter 12. John, well, according to early church tradition, he was never killed for Jesus' sake, but he did suffer plenty for it. In fact, uh, the early church tradition is that at one point he was actually boiled in hot oil. Um, we know he was exiled to the island of Patmos. He suffered plenty for the sake of Jesus. And so, indeed, they did suffer for him. They did drink the cup of suffering. Well, that's Jesus' response to James and John. Somehow, word gets back to the other 10 of the 12 about what uh, James and John requested, and then they get angry about it. Look at verse 41. Hearing this, the other 10 began to feel indignant with James and John. So they're upset, they're angry. Like, who do you think you are that you're asking for the chief seats over us? And why do you think you're trying to weasel your way in there? And it creates conflict between the 12 apostles. Here's how Jesus deals with it. Remember, Jesus just told them that he's going to die. And here they are fighting over titles and positions. And so Jesus, in verse 42, calls them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them. And their people in high position exercise authority over them. That word translated domineer literally is lord it over. They're heavy-handed bosses. They like to be in control. That's the same force of this idea of exercise authority. They, they, they want to be in charge and in control. And it's not that authority is bad. Jesus, after all, is the son of man. That's a glorious title for one who's given an, a universal kingdom. So authority itself isn't bad. It's the way you use your authority to be domineering and to be controlling. That's the world's way, Jesus says. That's the way the Gentiles, i.e. people who are not God's people, those outside of God's family, that's the way they do it. But that's not Jesus' way. And discipleship entails imitation. So, verse 43... 
But, Jesus says, it's not this way among you. You are, you are like the leaders of the, the kingdom of the Messiah, right? It's not going to be this way among you. Rather, whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you shall be the slave of all. The word translated prominent there literally is great. Whoever wants to become great among you. All right, you guys are clamoring for position, right? You're asking for the chief seats. Then you're getting offended and you're arguing over titles and position. You all want to be great. Let me help you understand what greatness means in my kingdom. It means becoming a servant. And the first word translated servant there is diakonos. It's becoming one who serves other people, comes alongside them to help them out. Whoever wants to be first, to be right number one, well, the way you're going to express that is by, by becoming a slave, a doulos of all, uh, a slave of everyone. Jesus is really working hard to drive this point home. We saw the exact same theme in chapter 9, and now here we have it again. There is a way to be great in Jesus' kingdom. There's a way to use positions of power and authority in Jesus' kingdom that will honor Jesus. And that has to do with becoming a servant, becoming a slave, putting others ahead of yourself. And then Jesus actually ties this theme here specifically to his example. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer and die. And that's the pattern. That's the example of servanthood that those who want to be first and great in his kingdom must follow. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember, the Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7, and there it's a great and glorified person. The Son of Man there sits on the throne with God and is given a universal kingdom, right? So the Son of Man is this exalted, glorified person. Notice, however, that doesn't mean everyone serves the Son of Man. No, the Son of Man... Jesus came to serve others. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So the Son of Man himself exists to serve other people. And not just any simple kind of service, but he's going to lay down his very life for others. The Son of Man came to serve others and to give his life. That's how he's going to ultimately, the highest a point of service is to lay down his life for many, for other people. And he's going to do so as a ransom. He's laying down his life as a ransom for many. And this noun ransom refers to uh, the price of release or the price of freedom. It's actually related to the verb redeem that we see in a number of places throughout the New Testament. And don't get hung up on questions of who Jesus paid the price to. Some people have wrestled with that question and they've you know, tried to figure that out. That's not the focus or the emphasis. The emphasis on the fact that Jesus' death was the necessary price to secure our release from the penalty and power of sin. And it's likely that Isaiah 53 and the servant of the Lord's pouring out his life for many is what lies behind Jesus' words here. That's the focus. And so if you want to be great in Jesus' kingdom, if you want to be first in Jesus' kingdom, if you want to have a position of prominence in his kingdom, then you imitate 
Jesus, who serves others by laying down his life for them. And that's the point. That's the point for the twelve. And that's the point for us. Becoming a servant of all is the very pattern of Jesus' life and death. And since discipleship entails imitation, we see that the cross is also the pattern for our way of life and for our ministry as well. Um, The cross is not just something that provides for our redemption, right? Pays the ransom for our sin. It's also the pattern for how we go about life and ministry. Hey, it's John. I just want to say a huge thank you to those of you who make the Listener's Commentary possible. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported Bible teaching effort. And it's possible because people generously give to support this work. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, there's a link down in the notes below, or you can just go to listenerscommentary.com. You can click the Give button, and you can set up a monthly donation right there. Or if you're not able to do monthly, you can also just give a one-time donation as well. Thanks a ton for your support.